Welcome to this podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Tanya Muntz, Vice President for Scholarly Programs at the Center, and your host for this episode. Over the past century, revolutions in media and communication technologies have fostered closer, more immediate connections across the globe. But instead of creating greater cultural homogeneity, the opposite seems to be true. We seem to be ever more aware of and attached to our regional distinctions. Today, we're talking to Wendy Griswold, Bergen Evans Professor in the Humanities and Professor of Sociology at Northwestern University. For many years, Wendy's research has helped explain how culture, especially literary culture, produces and maintains a sense of regional identity. This year, as a John Hope Franklin Fellow at the Center, she's working on the third installment of her groundbreaking series of books on how works of art and literature are integral to the development and perpetuation of our sense of place. Thank you, Wendy, for joining us. Thank you. So, Wendy, the project you're working on while at the center is called Placements, Positions, and Location Through American Culture. But this isn't a standalone work that you're writing. It's the culmination of a trilogy, which I actually really love as an academic project. Parts one and two have already been published as separate books. So I was wondering, before we dive in, could you tell us a little bit more about those first two works? Your first book in particular was called Regionalism and the Reading Class. Who or what is the reading class, and what can it tell us about regionalism? The idea of the reading class is very sociological. As as you indicated, my work has one foot in the humanities and one foot in sociology. And the idea of the reading class is that in any country, if you look at uh, who reads, you look at survey data, you look at uh, reading practices, there's a very specific group of people characterized by high education, but also all educated people don't read. But there are people who are very devoted to reading, even though they have available to them, you know, television and social media and all the other things that we have. And so I call these people the reading class. And they're a a fairly small percentage of any adult group, uh, highest in places like the Netherlands, the UK, uh, fairly high in the US, Canada, and so forth, lower in other places. And the argument of regionalism in the reading class is that this group of people is extremely influential culturally. I mean, these are, we're all members. Everybody listening to this podcast is a member, I would guess. And so these people have a lot of cultural influence. And uh, so the argument of the book is that their tastes and specifically their interest in place and their place and their regions have uh, helped perpetuate the um, ongoing uh, kind of culture of place that you referred to in the introduction. And then your second book of this trilogy was called American Guides, The Federal Writers Project and the Casting of American Culture. I think this project is really fascinating because it looks at a part of the Work Projects Administration, or the WPA as it's better known, that we really don't necessarily think of when we think of this kind of work creation program that FDR put in place. What can you tell us about this project and its effects on regionalism? Yeah, it's surprising. When we think of the WPA, we think of, you know, guys with sledgehammers and, you know, making roads and so forth. But the arts projects were actually the first of the WPA projects, and the literature project was one of these. And at the time, a lot of writers were communists or fellow travelers, and so the federal government's concern was to give these people something to do that would keep them out of trouble, uh, give them uh, jobs, but keep them out of trouble. And so they came up with this idea of writing state guides. And so every state produced a guide to North Carolina, a guide to Kentucky. Every state did this. 
um, and it kept the writers busy and on the payroll. And in every state guide was an essay on literature. And so it's a case of place making. Prior to the, uh, the 1930s, when, when we thought of American regional literature, regional culture, we thought of things like Appalachian culture, Southern culture, New England. After these guides came out, it became more reasonable to think that there was North Carolina culture, and that North Carolina culture was somehow different than Tennessee culture, than South Carolina. And so the argument is that the work and the product of this WPA project, which was really just to give people jobs, there was no cultural intent, but it changed the shape of how we think of regional cultures. So your current project looks at position and location through American culture. In many ways, it segues on the projects you just talked about, but it's also different. Can you talk to us a little bit about what the differences are between position and location that you examine? Here I'm sort of uh, starting as the sociologist and ending as something else. A lot of my work on culture, what I call cultural objects, which have for the most part been literary but not entirely, it has to do with how people interact with cultural objects. So if you're thinking about books, I look at editors, I look at readers, I look at systems of distribution, I look at writers, you know, who gets to be a writer, who doesn't. And that's really what I was doing in the first two books. But there's something that isn't well explained by just looking at the social interaction with cultural objects, but it also isn't explained by somehow thinking that the text or the artwork or whatever just gives rise to its own interpretation that um, nobody believes that anymore. So this kind of led me into, well, how does, how does meaning-making happen, and how do places become meaningful? And this led me into this whole area of neurobiology and neuroaesthetics. The people who do this work, and I am dependent upon them, argue that different parts of the brain, what they sometimes call the aesthetic brain, will get triggered and activated in quite separately in, in different ways. So if a sensation comes in, say you look at a landscape, which is one of the objects that I'm going to be talking about in this book, a sensation comes in to one part of the brain, say a visual sensation. Then another part of the brain does or doesn't attach emotion to that, and a third part of the brain interprets it and makes meaning from it. And then yet another part of the brain tells you if you should take action, if this is something that you need to worry about. So you can imagine you're in a movie theater, you see a man with a gun, you have an emotion of fear, you interpret this and decide to take action depending on whether this is on the screen or in the theater itself. So all of these, so, you know, in a microsecond, all of these different parts of the brain get activated. I think this process can be applied to how we respond aesthetically in general, and in particular, how we respond to places, either images of places or actual places. So what I'm trying to do in the book, in a one sentence, is to look at different episodes from American placemaking, like the um, local color movement in literature or the Hudson Valley School in painting. 
and try to see if we can understand how these movements became embraced and popular by thinking through the neuroaesthetics of the response that people had to these either places or representations of place. So when you're using the neuroscience, you're talking about the functional magnetic resonance, I assume, right? That show us which parts of the brain are active. Right. So in this work, you also cover quite a bit of time, right? You talk about the 19th century and you take us to the present. You have that data for the present. We can put people now in an fMRI machine and see which parts of the brain light up. How does that work for you for the 19th century? Well, it's a conceptual model. For example, where does emotion come in? which neither the sociologists nor I guess I would say the humanists are handling very well. Let me just give a little example. It's been observed in many cultures that people who live in mountains, in mountain areas, have extremely strong attachment to place and are very reluctant to move even though mountain areas are typically resource poor. And so they really ought to move to the lowlands. They really ought to move to the cities. Appalachia is our common example. Why might this be? Well, the evolutionary biology folks will say that some of our responses to height and mountains and so forth have to do with the need for safety and that this is a biological thing that people, you know, back in the day could hide from danger in mountainous areas. Now, this connects with sort of aesthetic theories of the sublime and all of this very romantic actually yeah right so Hudson Valley paintings and and so forth and yet this might be connected to something that is hardwired in the human brain going back to the earliest days of the species and produces the emotional response of safety security that a non-mountainous area doesn't produce and this could have something to do with why Mountain people are more reluctant to move than non-mountain people. So it's just sort of an example of the sort of connections that I'm going to be looking for. What I really love about how you talk about this work is I think it's an incredibly good example of how somebody might bridge the sciences and the humanities. And I think that's what you're talking about. Yeah, well, this is the goal. (laughs) Yeah. So I want to go back for a moment to this idea between position and location and Tell me if I'm understanding this correctly, what you're talking about with the kind of affective connection that somebody might have to a place. In your framework, that's location rather than position. Does that sound right? So help us understand what position is. Well, position is the sort of social starting point. So I mentioned the sensation comes into the brain. If you're not in a position to receive that sensation, then you're not going to interpret anything. So, and, and so here's where we get, say, into inequalities. If you can't read, literature will not be something from which you can make meaning. If you do not hear music, if you do not see art, and so forth. So this is the, uh, the sort of <laughs> sociological bedrock of having any, any aesthetic experience. So as we mentioned, your book follows a chronological structure, and you start in the 19th century and move us to the present. What can you tell us about how 19th century regionalism was different from, say, post-World War II, 20th century regionalism? Well, I don't think the differences 
follow centuries. I do think there are episodes when people start thinking about place more. And, and, and when I say people, I'm really talking about the reading class and the kind of culturally, uh, the people who define the cultural moment. I think there are times when they're paying more attention to place than others. So, for example, in the late 19th century, in, in middle and late 19th century, uh, following the Civil War, there was great interest in sectional differences. At the same time, there was a great interest in the New York City area in kind of non-New York. And all of this was facilitated by technological changes that made magazines like Harper's and The Atlantic and The Century and all of these mid-late 19th century magazines widely available to people. And so there were both images, the engravings and the prints in those magazines, and writing the local color short story writers that were filling the kind of middle class reader's need for stuff, content, uh, we would say, with images of sections of the country that were not New York City and Boston and so forth. And so a number of the moments or episodes I mentioned, local color, Hudson River School and so forth, were of this moment. 1930s was another period when there was a great deal of attention, partly facilitated by the federal government, but partly before um, a lot of this came from the South. There was a lot of attention to the dangers of industrialization and homogenization, and everything was going to be, you know, like the Northeast. And then there was a lot of pushback. Uh, again, Southern intellectuals were very involved in this. And then, by this happy coincidence, the WPA program made it legitimate to talk about Oklahoma literature and Oklahoma culture. So I do think you get moments. The NEA and NEH, uh, since the late 1960s, have similarly facilitated the idea because they run through states. There's a North Carolina Humanities Council, North Carolina Arts, and so they have encouraged and supported and facilitated the idea of place cultures at the state level. So there are, there are certain things that happen that make, I don't know, placeness more to the front of the concern of people who think and write and talk about culture. When you talked about the reading class at the very beginning of our conversation, you talked about how it really is a relatively small group of people. Today, we can't help but think of the vast democratization of information through social media and just the level of connectedness that we're experiencing. What can you tell us about regional culture today and about place? Well, one thing that the IT or digital revolution has done, and this isn't so much social media, although I expect it's the same story, but just more generally uh, the digital revolution, it's made place connections easier. So, you know, everything from migrants in Germany from Turkey can stay very close to what's happening in their hometown back in Turkey. One group that I've been looking at recently is Jews who grew up in Harbin, China, and then left following the um, Second World War. They and their children have these groups all over the world. There's a group in San Francisco. There's a number of groups in Israel. And they all stay in touch with each other memories of Harbin or my grandfather's memories of Harbin and they sometimes take trips back to the Jewish cemetery in Harbin, China. Now there's no Jews left in Harbin. So this would have been inconceivable a hundred years ago and so the digital revolution as well as transportation revolutions have enabled these groups to stay in contact and continue this memory 
of place and this place that was very important to them or to their ancestors. One thing that I do think is characteristic of our time, post-World War II to the present, is that people are highly mobile and they are enabled through various media to do things that they might not have otherwise been able to do. And the example is what I call cultural cowbirds, where people who move into areas are very quick to learn about the culture in that area to the point of which that if you ask them questions about the food or the music or the literature, they know as much or more than the people who always lived in the area. This ability to draw in cultures that are not your native culture, that are not your not your families, not your deep roots, you know, our ability to be sort of cultural connoisseurs, that is new for most people and is very much enabled by digital media. Wendy, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. And thank you to our audience for listening. Please join us again for our next podcast from the National Humanities Center. 